This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with University of Michigan Professor Andrew Ryan measuring for spending efficiency or value in healthcare. Andy, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, David. Professor Ryan's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, as well recognized, healthcare is increasingly unaffordable. As a solution, the government is widely advocating for price transparency. If prices were transparent, patients, less those riding in an ambulance, could shop for value. The problem is, even if patients could intelligently shop for value, a big if, they'd not get far because prices do not necessarily reflect value. As cited in my Bloomberg Law essay posted as a run-up to this interview, the best healthcare in the world, former Princeton economist Uwe Reinhardt used to quip, costs twice as much as the finest healthcare or the best healthcare in the world. This is because in healthcare we largely do not measure for spending efficiency or value, defined as healthcare outcomes achieved relative to spending. Despite all the talk and programming over the past decade about value-based payments or pay-for-performance arrangements, we either measure care quality and spending or costs separately, or we confuse quality with value. With me to again discuss pending efficiency in healthcare is University of Michigan professor Andrew Ryan. So with that as background, Andy, maybe we could start by just an orienting question. Uh, can you briefly uh, describe uh, your related research interest? Yeah, of course. So most of my research is focused on the effects of health policies, specifically how payment reform has affected quality and spending in the United States. So much of this work has evaluated how these pay-for-performance programs or value-based payment initiatives have affected the behavior of hospitals, physicians, accountable care organizations, and really what lessons we've been able to learn from these programs. I think um, in general, we found that these incentives to improve quality and value haven't worked as well as many of the policymakers would have hoped, but I think that in recent years there have been some examples of successful programs that we can hopefully build on. So that's really what um, I'm working on with my research team. All right, thank you. So to get into this, my first question, and I have to say I've been struck by this for now many years, why has the Medicare, and let's just stay with that, why has the Medicare program uh, not given uh, priority or slight priority, I think you'd agree at best, to trying to measure spending efficiency? Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, worth reflecting on you know how we how we got here and how kind of pay for performance came into play so you know in the early 2000s there was kind of a a realization that an awakening that quality in the United States wasn't 
what it should be. There were the famous IOM reports mm-hmm. um, about, you know, to err as human and cr- crossing the quality chasm. There was the, the McGlynn paper about quality in the, in the United States. Right, Beth McGlynn, this, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, and there's this, this, this widespread idea that there are, that there was lots of underuse, that there was lots of um, care that patients should be getting that they're not getting, processes of care, certain screenings, tests, many related to chronic disease. And at the same time, there was, this, there was an idea that, you know, we're making errors and we were, there were safety issues in the, in the United Healthcare system. And related to this was this idea of like, so, so why is this happening? What's the, what's the underlying cause of this? And part of the thinking there was that the way that payment systems work, um, they have not effectively rewarded quality of care. And in many ways, quality has been kind of neutral in payment systems or uh, if you think about Things like, you know, readmissions where hospitals would be paid, you know, again, if a patient has to be rehospitalized as a result of poor quality care, you can make an argument that in some cases poor quality was actually rewarded by prevailing fee-for-service. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of where the, the first experiments with pay-for-performance came into play. And it was like, you know, we have to address this quality problem. We don't think that the system is rewarding quality. And then I'll also say at that time, David, there was a theory that, okay, if we reward quality, then that will make patients, improve patients' outcomes, that will make them healthier, and that will in turn lead to lower spending. And that was a, that was a theory when these programs first started. And I think, you know, as the evaluation evidence has come in, over the years, I think we've learned a couple things. Number one, that that um, to the extent that these programs have worked with respect to quality, they've tended to um, improve these so-called process measures, which which measure uh, more or less adherence with evidence-based medicine. However, these improvements in process haven't done too much to drive outcome improvement and haven't have done nothing to change uh, spending patterns. So. As this has, as evidence has materialized, I think CMS has then said, okay, we need a new, you know, we need a new course of action. We need to think about measuring and rewarding payment and, um, and uh, outcomes in addition to process. But it's been a while getting there. And I think it's this, this, um, this evolution from CMS has kind of um, come out of the uh, evaluation evidence from these programs. Okay, thank you. You're right. Uh, the theory is uh, still yet unproven that quality uh, reduces spending. So let's get into your uh, research specifically. You've, um, and I'll reference, you did, uh, you were contracted to do uh, research, to do research for the National Quality Forum. This is uh, four or five years ago where you looked at ways in which uh, spending uh, and quality are measured, as you say, simultaneously. Uh, that NQF work led to a publication, I'll note here specifically with a colleague, uh, Chris Tompkins, linking spending and quality indicators to measure value and efficiency in healthcare, and that was 2017 in Medical Care Research and Review. So let me ask you if you could outline what are some of the, say, more common ways in which 
um, we have been trying to measure uh, spending uh, efficiency or value, or again, uh, trying to measure as a numerator and denominator quality or outcomes over overspending. Yeah. So, you know, as I just alluded to, I think over time CMS has figured out that just rewarding process measures isn't going to be good enough and that we want to move towards outcomes and also towards spending. But then the question is, how do you do that in an integrated way? How do you kind of jointly reward quality and spending? And so for this paper, we reviewed um, some of what was happening in national programs that CMS had implemented as well as other ideas that have been proposed in the literature. And so I'll just talk about a couple of the common mm -hmm. models. One we'll just call the, the unconditional model. Right. And un under this model, say um, the, a program sponsor, say CMS, might say, okay, um, we think that the total performance for, say, hospitals should be 30% patient experience, 30% outcomes, um, um, and 10% uh, process measures, and then 30% spending. Okay, and then what CMS would do is measure hospital performance separately on all those domains, and then use a, some weights to combine, come up with an overall mm -hmm. composite, and that would say, you know, here's your total performance. And so I say it's unconditional because there's no, it's the, the total score is just the sum of these weights. So it doesn't really, um, the total, you don't need to have, you know, your, your quality performance doesn't need to meet a certain threshold right. in order to, to, uh, to do well on the overall score, and so there's no conditionality built in across the domains. And so I think what you know we've we've uh, identified as an issue with the system is that you know you know say hospitals could potentially have poor quality but end up receiving you know bonuses in the program um, as long as their spending is sufficiently low. And you know that's been an issue. A, a, kind of a question, you know, is that really what we want to be rewarding or incentivizing in um, these value-based payment programs? So, you know, that's that's one option. Another option is is what we've called the conditional model where basically um, you can think about, say, a, a simple way to think about this would be like a two-by-two two cell where, um, you know, spending would be uh, uh, profiled as being high or low, and then quality would also be profiled as being high or low. And then you could see, imagine that providers would all fall into one of these cells, and then the sponsor would decide how much you would get in terms of bonuses or penalties depending on which cell you were in. Mm -hmm. But there's a natural dependency that's kind of baked into how the incentive accrues in that. And then, so this was the basic design for the, um, the, the physician uh, value modifier program. So, and then uh, a third way that's been commonly used is this so-called uh, hurdle model, where basically there is some kind of minimal, minimum threshold that a provider has to meet, typically for quality, 
and then after meeting that threshold, there could be their um, they're profiled on on spending. So, uh, or you know, really with like the the ACO model, which is really what we're thinking about for this this model, it's really um, there's there's a hurdle for both quality and spending. So, for instance, with ACO programs, if ACOs have to meet a spending hurdle, they have to generate savings in order to be eligible for payouts, but they also have to meet minimum quality mm-hmm. um, standards in order to get payouts. And then the higher their quality is, then they're they're eligible for, for greater shared savings. So that's another way that quality and spending could be combined. And then finally, um, you know, sometimes um, um, you, there, there isn't a formal combination that, you know, profiling is done really based on one or the other, typically, you know, spending and that quality might just be monitored alongside spending. So, I mean, it, it, what's interesting is that I, I think um, CMS hasn't really had a universal approach to how it applies these models. It's used different models and in the context of different programs. And um, and I think there's there's certainly pros and cons of, of, of different strategies, but there's been a lot of um, heterogeneous adoption of, of these these uh, methods of linking quality and spending. <laughs> I liked your last phrase. Exactly right. So although it's one Medicare program, it depends on what silo you're in as to how CMS mm-hmm. measures. So you, you referenced when you began essentially how the macro MIPS program works and then the hospital value-based mm-hmm. purchasing program has been accused, and you've done research, published research on this, that you can award, get financial award for high spending efficiency but poor quality. ACOs do have a bit of a hurdle. It's it's a low mm-hmm. bar at 30%. You get all your shared savings, assuming you beat your benchmark, um, if you have quality at uh, at least 90%. And then uh, various other programs go on from there. And Medicare Advantage, of course, has um, a variation on a theme as well. So it depends on what what program you're in, uh, determine specifics. Right. Let me let me. And of course, there are states, and we don't have time. This is a many-hour conversation, but states have variations. <laughs> California, uh, for example, is, is sort of known. They do have a hurdle um, in their program. But let me just ask you, relative um, to your opening comment, that. Uh, these incentive programs have not produced, let's just say, uh, certainly stellar results. Um, but amongst and between and amongst these, rather, uh, what payment formula, either at the Medicare national level or at, at some state level, uh, do you see as possibly more promising or more in the right direction than others? Um, in preparing for this, for example, I reread nine of your articles on this. Uh, you've done a lot of work on this. So you're the person to ask. Where where are you most sanguine or 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 a bullish yeah. as it relates to yeah. these various formulas? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you, it, it kind of it's this answer is really informed by what I've seen overall in the evidence, and what I've seen overall is that. There is pretty clear evidence that payment reform really can affect spending. 
in meaningful ways that we can change how we pay providers and health systems and that's going to change spending patterns and uh, so I think that's pretty clear and I think that with respect to quality now the idea that we're going to pay differently and we're going to meaningfully change you know health outcomes you know I think that it's certainly plausible but the evidence supporting that premise is honestly much weaker and it's of course you can point to places where measured quality has seemingly improved but you know, I just think this has been a harder proposition, and it really comes from what are the, I think, the a lot of the inherent challenges in appropriately measuring what's most important and and health deliver, and and so so anyway, I think that um, we've seen much less evidence of improvement in patient and in patient um, outcomes and, and quality, and I think you know for that reason I. I am more optimistic about programs that are really oriented fundamentally around spending reductions and I think think about quality as kind of um, uh, like secondary. You know, uh, something I'll, I'll, I'll mention is what we've seen with the bundle payment programs with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with um, BPCI and the, CJR, the, yeah. the CJR program. You know, both these programs you know they've 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 changed incentives. They made hospital more accountable for what happens after the patients are discharged, and the programs really seem to be working. Hospitals have become more efficient with how they manage post-acute care, and to date, now this could always change, but what we've seen to date is that this hasn't had any negative impact on patient health. That, and so. And, and so I view this, these programs as, um, as really improving efficiency. You know, we're reducing spending and quality is either neutral, you know, to the extent that we can see it, quality has been, um, not been affected. It's, it's, it's as good as it was before. So, you know, I think that the ACO programs too are fundamentally about spending reduction that's really the orientation the quality measures there are you know they're there they're important they help to um, guide the you know how much sharing the ACOs get from the their bonuses but um, you know the it's really secondary to the the spending reduction so I think that you know both those models are appropriate, either not rewarding quality at all explicitly, but just monitoring it and um, alongside program implementation and just kind of figuring out whether the program is 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 active is harming patients or affecting quality. I think that's one strategy. And another way is to kind of use this these, this hurdle approach to say like, you know, we're going to enforce these these minimum quality standards by you know X measures and um, uh, but you know this is really fundamentally about spending reductions you know I, I honestly think that both those approaches are reasonable and sensible I think when you have these convoluted um, you know functions where your total performance is is you know driven by all these complex measures across many domains. Mm-hmm. I think it just sends uh, 
it, it's very hard for providers to to focus on what's important in those programs. I think sometimes CMS, it just feels like there's this throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and hopefully we have improvement in the right direction. I just think, and really the, the evidence from those kind of omnibus programs has been really quite weak so far. So, so I'm much less in favor of, you know, programs that are like, you know, designed like hospital value-based purchasing, which is an unconditional model, or, you know, the MIPS, um, you know, slash, you know, physician value modifier program. I just think that those are really not, um, not really what we're looking for, and, and I think those are designs that are honestly much weaker. Mm-hmm. Per your uh, comment about bundles, uh, one of the major concerns when, for example, comprehensive joint replacement was announced in August of 15 was that it would drive up volume. And the yeah. good news is, at least uh, to date, the evidence is not there that uh, hospitals have done more hips and knees, despite mm-hmm. many of them are preference sensitive. So that's that's somewhat of a relief on MIPS. You probably where MedPAC is called for that program. This was created under the 2015 macro law that that be completely abandoned and, and the agency start over. Um, and in fact, MedPAC has made a similar recommendation on the complication of pay for performance under Part A Medicare hospitals reimbursement because there are four programs and CMS uh, has uh, made it difficult because uh, obviously each one is different. So MedPAC last June and again in their March report came out with a recommendation that they be collapsed into one uh, program. Uh, I, I will mention uh, the current beyond the complications of all this, um, there are some unintended negative consequences. Um, I'll mention, since I mentioned there are four hospital programs, there is a hospital. Um, have you looked at specifically the hospital uh, readmission reduction program? Because... It looks like the evidence on that is we're getting a, a reverse Robin Hood effect. Um, so have you have you taken a look? And that that looks like it may be the program most exposed to having uh, to be reinvented. Yeah, well, that you know that the program is really interesting because I think you know hospitals really have been responsive to this one so yes um, you know I think there's really evidence that hospitals have cared about it and done something to try to reduce readmissions or improve their readmission rates Mm -hmm. and you know so I think the story with this program is that I think that uh, you know we have looked at this and that readmissions have fallen after the program was initiated but a, a good chunk of that reduction has to do with coding changes and how the over time patients have uh, there's been more comorbidities have been coded that have has kind of given the illusion of risk adjusted rates kind of falling more whereas you know unadjusted rates have fallen less so so anyway some of the gains in the program has been overstated I think but to your other point I, I think that there's no question that certain types of hospitals that care for more socioeconomically disadvantaged patients have been penalized more. That has certainly happened. That's been a very robust finding. And, of course, there's this concern where, as you mentioned, the reverse Robin Hood effect, that that this could over time reinforce disparities in care. 
if you just have different resources that are that are kind of being drawn away from hospitals caring for more disadvantaged patients. And so, you know, in the 21st Century Cures Act, this is the the um, the um, penalty formula has changed so that there will now be new thresholds for penalties that are determined on the extent to which there's there's hospitals that care for more poor patients will have different thresholds mm-hmm. for penalties. And so I think this is going to help with with that issue. And I think honestly I think that that idea of you know creating these different competition pools or kind of groups through which where which providers um, kind of compete against each other that are more similar to them makes sense in these value-based programs and can help reduce these disparities in payments that you mentioned before. And so um, it'll be curious to see if um, there's any fallout from this new um, incentive formula under HRP um, because it could be a model for how um, we think about trying to kind of even the playing field in these value-based payment Mm -hmm. models. You know, we have time for one uh, last question, and uh, this is a formula, and I try to ask this, and that is, if you're a patient, to what extent should you be aware of these programs? Because there is a debate about um, how productive it is to actually uh, make, in this case, the Medicare beneficiary aware that they're in one of these uh, P4Ps or or they're in an ACO. In fact, there's some focus group research that shows that can be counterproductive. But what advice uh, or what's your take on to the extent that patients should study or be aware of to the extent that it matters to patients? Well, you know, it was interesting in your setup, David, about price transparency. And, you know, a huge – I think – on the on the commercial side, it really matters. You know, it really matters to know about your networks, and mm-hmm. and it really it's important to understand relative prices. You know, that that really matters. You know, of course, in Medicare, we don't have those. We have administrative prices. Pricing. We don't have those those differences. And so, you know, how much should patients? How much should patients know that they're in these programs? I don't know. I I I don't feel that strongly about it. I mean, I think that ACOs are, are something that probably have in some of the the primary care based programs have uh, the potential for I think more um, uh, more success if there's a if there's a joint engagement from patients and right providers. voluntary assignment right yes yeah you know there's a great study a few years ago um, from. Uh, you know, David Ash and Kevin Volpert Penn, where they looked at it, they did an experiment where around, um, uh, it was around cholesterol control, and they, it, they assigned incentives either to providers alone, patients alone, or providers and patients together. And then, and then they, there was a, uh, I think there was a comparison group that just got, you know, whatever usual treatment. And it was that group, that group of, the group of providers and patients that were jointly incentive that had the, the greatest improvement. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this just speaks to, I think, the importance of patient engagement. But, you know, I, it's, it's, this is something that's really hard to do on a large scale. I mean, Medicare, I think, is, 
is not um, how, how does Medicare, you know, engage patients at a, in a national level? And, and, you know, Medicare Advantage has tools and the mechanisms and the whole kind of care management infrastructure to try to do this. So to me, part of the, the answer to your question, which I'm kind of, um, I don't have a great answer to it, but, but could be found in kind of the, the experience of, of MA in involving patients and and how and how well that's uh, you know been responsible for uh, improvements in, in spending and in, in value. Right. Uh, uh, try to um, provide or support um, uh, patient self adherence. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, uh, Andy, sorry, we're we're at our time boundary. So let me say thank you for this overview of a incredibly substantive, although somewhat technical issue, but very important considering the fact, again, that uh, we have this problem of correlating uh, prices with value. So I am appreciative. Thank you again. Of course. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.